This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, America is facing familiar challenges with increasing frustration. Breaking overnight, there's been another mass shooting, this time at a bar in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Three are dead, two others wounded. This morning, yet another American community is waking up and asking why. This has to end. It's a national embarrassment. It is a national embarrassment what's going on. Every single day, every single day, there's a mass shooting in the United States. Plus, there is new pain and protest after videos of police officers shooting and killing 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago and 20-year-old Dante Wright in Minnesota. When will that cycle stop? All this as the world struggles with a coronavirus crisis that refuses to quit. Cases and hospitalizations are on the rise again, and a key COVID shot is paused, increasing anxiety over vaccine safety. We are at a crossroads right now. If we can get more and more people vaccinated, we almost certainly are gonna be able to blunt an increase that's a sharp surge in the virus. We'll talk with Dr. Anthony Fauci and former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. And as we approach Earth Day, two special conversations as the world unites to fight climate change. We'll talk with French President Emmanuel Macron and the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, about that, plus the refugee crisis and new conflicts with Russia. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We've got a lot to get to today, but we begin with the sobering news that over 3 million people have now died from COVID-19 globally. Here in the U.S., there is good news for adults who want to be vaccinated. Starting tomorrow, everyone over the age of 18 will now be eligible. We begin with Mark Strassman. More mayhem in Minnesota. In our national reckoning about race, protests fueled by twin moments of anguish in the Twin Cities, less than 10 miles and just 10 months apart. First, a cop's knee buried in George Floyd's neck last May. In former officer Derek Chauvin's murder trial, a jury will start deliberating tomorrow. Minneapolis could face more unrest. These times are tense. Uh, they are traumatic. Spiking those tensions. This police shooting last Sunday in a Minneapolis suburb. 20-year-old Dante White killed when a cop mistook her gun for her taser. 
The officer resigned and has been charged with manslaughter. That rage brought out crowds of protesters from New York to Sacramento. Among their demands, sweeping police reform. With the Chauvin verdict looming, police agencies in cities like Washington, D.C., Boston, New York, and Philadelphia are all now prepping for potential trouble this week. Many other Americans are unnerved by something else, the lingering COVID threat. In many places, the virus is spiking again. Also undermining confidence that we've turned a corner, safety questions about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The FDA has suspended giving any more doses of the J&J, &J, a precaution until scientists resolve an issue of post-vaccination blood clots. What we found is um, really extremely rare cases. How rare? Literally one in a million. Eight known clots in roughly eight million Americans who've received the single shot J&J. &J. But much more common over the past week, COVID hospitalizations. 38 states reported hikes, along with a nationwide average of around 76,000 new COVID cases a day. We know that other states are getting hammered, so we clearly are in the danger zone. States getting hammered, Michigan, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. COVID still has America cornered. While we flatten the curve again and again, COVID will not surrender. Against the resurging virus, the U.S. is racing to vaccinate as many people as possible. 205 million doses have been administered. In a country hungry for signs of progress, nearly half of all Americans age 18 and up have had at least one shot of the vaccine. Mark Strassman in Atlanta. We go now to the president's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning, Margaret. At this point, nearly 40% of Americans have gotten at least one dose of a vaccine. When will the infection rate come down? You know, I think it's gonna come down soon if we do two things. One that I'm sure we'll be able to do is to continue the really very fine rate of vaccination where we're vaccinating between three and four million people per day. But the other wild card in this is to be making sure that until we get to that point, we don't pull back on public health measures because we're having between 60 and 70,000 new infections per day. And it would really, I th think, not be prudent at all to declare victory prematurely and pull back. Without a doubt, as we continue every single day to get more and more people vaccinated, that rate will go down if we don't give the virus the opportunity to essentially surge and by giving the virus the opportunity, I mean just pulling back on public health measures. If we do those two things simultaneously, continue to vaccinate at the same time as we just hang in there a bit longer, I believe we will be okay. We will reach the point where we will be able to get back to doing things the way we did before, but we're gonna have to make sure that we get as many people vaccinated as we possibly can. But right now, about 5% of U.S. vaccine supply is sidelined because of this pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Can you explain here, I mean, what we have seen in public reporting is that it's six women between the ages of 18 to 45 who developed clots in their brain within two weeks of receiving the vaccine. Have there been any further cases, and will the restrictions be lifted this week? Well, I don't know if there have been further cases, but we will know that by Friday. And I would be very surprised, Margaret, if we don't have uh, a resumption in some form 
by Friday. A decision almost certainly will be made by Friday. I don't really anticipate that they're going to want to stretch it out a bit longer. And one way or the other, make a decision about J&J. &J. I don't know what that's going to be, but, you know, thinking about what the possibilities are, one of the possibilities would be to bring them back, but to do it with some form of restriction or some form of warning. But I believe by Friday we're going to know the answer to that. You told CBS this week that one of the things that you think needs to be investigated is the role of hormones here. Uh, looking at the fact that these women are of childbearing age, you wanted to look at whether they were on birth control. Does that indicate that the restrictions could be gender-based? Well, it could be, Margaret, but we have to be careful about that because we now have only seen six people. Something that's similar in, certainly in its mechanism and what we've seen with AZ, AstraZeneca, in the European Union and in the UK has the same sort of thrombotic phenomenon, namely a clot, together with low platelets. That's a very unusual situation to see that. And yet, under those circumstances, where they've seen many more with that different vaccine, it has not only been restricted to women. And that's one of the points we want to be careful. So you don't want to jump ahead of yourself and decide you know the total spectrum of this, which is one of the reasons why they paused and why hopefully by Friday we'll know that. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, as I understand it, as a layperson, it's an inactivated cold virus injected into someone. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, these mRNA vaccines, are a very different kind of vaccine. When you were on this program in February, I asked you whether Johnson & Johnson was an inferior vaccine. You said, no, no, it is not. You can't say that. Do you still believe that? Right. Yeah, from a standpoint of efficacy, no doubt we're dealing with three highly efficacious vaccines. The issue of safety now is being examined, and as we mentioned just a moment ago, we'll know a lot more about that by Friday. But the one thing we should emphasize when you're dealing with safety, people should not extrapolate a pause with one vaccine to the other vaccines. For example, the same surveillance system that picked up the six women in the J&J &J was the same surveillance system that the CDC and the FDA uses with the Moderna product and with the Pfizer product. And thus far, there have been no red flags of that, even though, you know, tens and tens and tens of millions of people have been vaccinated with those vaccines. So one of the things you can take away from all of this is that when the surveillance system, the CDC and the FDA say that something is safe, you can be sure that it's mm -hmm. safe. The CDC director was on this program in February and said at that time that there were other vaccines being looked at, either to deal with um, different strains, as she put it, or booster vaccines. Do we know net yet which one's needed, and when should Americans expect to have to go out and get a booster? You know, we're going to find that out soon, Margaret, because you determine whether a booster is needed to the particular virus that you're dealing with, like the standard virus. If you get a level of immunity, which is measured generally by antibodies, it's a correlate of immunity, when that level starts to fade down to a certain critical level, then it's a good indication you'll need a boost. Or 
if you start to see breakthrough infections, either with the original virus or with a variant. And if it's with the variant, even though a person's vaccinated, you might want to boost with a variant-specific boost as opposed to just a boost to the regular. So we'll know sometime, I believe, by the end of the summer, by the beginning of the fall, likely by the end of the summer, whether or not we're going to have to boost people with an additional shot, be it an additional shot against the original virus or perhaps, perhaps, an, a vaccination against something that's very specific to whatever variant you're worried about. Dr. Fauci, thank you for your time this morning. Good to be with you, Margaret. Thank you for having me. We turn now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He also sits on the board of Pfizer and joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning. Dr. Fauci said we would know no later than Friday whether this pause on J&J &J would be lifted. Um, you may not want to answer this question, but if you were still FDA commissioner, would you have gone ahead with this pause? Well, look, I think this is a decision for FDA to make. Right now, it's before the CDC's advisory committee, which I think creates some of the challenges around the process that they've outlined for how it's going to be decided that this gets resumed, the use of this vaccine gets resumed. I think it was a reasonable step to pause use of the vaccine while they investigate these cases. But I do believe this vaccine is going to continue to play an important role. And we need to find a pathway to bring this back to the market with perhaps additional warnings, perhaps additional information on who's most um, indicated for this vaccine, given the fact that these risks do seem to be related to the vaccine based on what we know right now. When you say restrictions, you mean certain age groups or certain genders? Yeah, I think you could see a situation where there's an age restriction on it, because a lot of the people who had this side effect associated with the uh, Johnson Johnson vaccine and also the side effects associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which also seemed to be um, a similar mechanism, they were younger individuals. And so they were at less risk from COVID disease, and they seemed to be at more risk potentially from this side effect. Now, we don't know a lot, so it's hard to draw firm conclusions. But based on what we know, that's the pattern that's emerging. So you might see a situation where the vaccine does get reserved for use in older individuals who are both potentially at lower risk of this side effect and also at higher risk of a bad outcome from COVID. That's one possibility in terms of how the FDA would bring this back. The other possibility is they just bring it back with additional warnings and advice to doctors and patients on what to be alert for so that these cases do emerge. You can get patients into treatment more immediately and hopefully head off a bad outcome. So starting this coming week, the vaccine is supposed to be available to all adults. When you were last with us, you said we were about to see more supply of vaccine than demand. Does that equation change now that 5% of the vaccine is off the market or does any part of this J&J &J complication change your forecast? I don't think the equation changes that much. Maybe you get pushed out a week, a week and a half. I think that there's still a lot of supply coming into the market. We're going to have a situation where the vaccines are going to be readily available. What does change, however, is that the J&J &J vaccine, as you know, was a one-shot vaccine. It was also able to be stored in easier environments. You were able to keep it at room temperature for extended periods of time in normal refrigeration. So it was an easier vaccine to deliver in austere settings. So to the extent that we're having trouble reaching certain communities with vaccination because of the complexity of delivering the current vaccine, 
vaccines, the J&J vaccine was a beneficial alternative. So I think the challenge now is going to be that we have to set up better logistics to try to reach communities that we know are hard to reach, where the J&J vaccine was making it easier, and now we have to use the mRNA in those settings. But I do believe the J&J vaccine will be back on the market in a reasonable period of time, hopefully this week, and hopefully it will be you know, able to be used in those populations, given what we know about its safety profile. You said on this program back in February uh, that you expected booster shots to be needed from, you know, Moderna and from Pfizer. Both companies confirmed that this week. So what else do you know about what they're developing? Does this need to be a new kind of vaccine or is it uh, the same version of the same old shot, just a third dose? Yeah, both are being tested right now in large trials, so we're going to have some data on that pretty soon. If you look at the Danish landmark study where they looked at people who were previously infected with COVID, how long their immunity lasted, once you got out six, six to seven, eight months in people who were over the age of 65, their immunity declined to about 47%. Now, that was from natural infection. We know the vaccines or we believe the vaccines provide more robust immunity than natural infection, but you do see a decline in the immune protection offered by prior infection in older individuals, and you expect to see some degradation with the vaccines as well. So I do believe we're going to be boosting. Now, the question of whether or not you use a vaccine that's specific to 1351, which is in development by both Moderna and Pfizer, or you just use a third dose of the existing vaccine, that needs to be worked out. But what you need to be careful about is that we don't use a variant vaccine that's specific to 1351 that provides some better protection against 1351, but you lose protection against everything else. And that is a possibility. And we're going to have a lot of data around the current vaccines and how, how they protect against the current variants. All we'll have really about the 1351 variant is how it protects against 1351. We won't have as much data, so I think this is going to be a challenging decision. What you were talking about with 1351, another question about a variant P1, which we are seeing that Brazilian version spread in Canada, actually uh, quite close to the U.S. border here. How concerned should Americans be? Well, look, I think we need to be concerned about P1. I think we need to be concerned about the variant that's spreading in India as well, which has two mutations in it, the mutation 484K mutation that's found in P1 and also the mutation that's found in that Los Angeles variant. So these, these variants are concerning. Right now, the prevalence of them isn't high enough in the United States that I think they're going to take off this summer. So I don't think they're a near-term risk. I think they're a risk as we head into the fall and the winter that one of these new variants could become the predominant strain. Now, that said... B117 right now is the most prevalent strain, and there's some people who believe that B117 is going to partially crowd out those other variants, and so it might be harder for those variants mm -hmm. to spread here in the U.S. All right. Dr. Gottlieb, it's always great talking to you. Thanks for your time today. Thanks a lot. We'll be back in a minute with French President Emmanuel Macron. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. France's COVID death toll just reached 100,000, and the country is currently in its third national lockdown. We spoke with French President Emmanuel Macron from the Lycée Palace in Paris earlier and asked when those restrictions will be lifted in France and when Americans can travel there again. We will progressively lift the restrictions at the beginning of May, which means that we will organize indeed summertime with our professionals in France for French European citizens, but as well for American citizens. So we are working hard to propose a very concrete solution, especially for your citizens um, who are vaccinated. So with a special pass, I would say. Have you worked that out with the White House? We did, we, yes, we started to discuss that. Now our ministers in charge are finalizing the technical um, discussions. In terms of method, in fact, we are building a European certificate to facilitate the travels after these restrictions between uh, the different European countries uh, with testing and vaccination. And the idea indeed is altogether to offer that to uh, the American citizen when they decided to vaccinate or with, with a, a, a PCR test being negative. So the idea is indeed to always control the virus, to maximize the vaccination and to progressively lift the restrictions. Mr. President, the European Union has been slow, as you know. That has hurt your country in rolling out these vaccines. Given that you need vaccines right now, are you going to buy Russia's Sputnik vaccine to make up for the shortfall? Because of the fact that we accelerated production in Europe, we are definitely catching up and we will be in a situation to meet our targets with what we have now. There, um, a few member states decided to have discussion with Sputnik, but we have a very few simple principles. First, if there is no recognition of a vaccine by our European sanitary authorities, there is no way to use this vaccine on our soil. And at this stage, um, the Russian vaccine is not recognized by our authorities. So I don't think that the Russian vaccine today is a solution to an acceleration because it will take time to have the authorization of the European agency, and it will take time to produce on our continent such a vaccine. When will you give away that 5% of vaccine doses that you say rich countries like yours should give to poor countries? If we don't vaccinate in these countries, there is no way to get rid of the virus. Because if we leave these countries being contaminated by COVID-19 mm -hmm. in South and Latin America, in Africa, you will have more and more people being contaminated. You will have new variants and they will come back in our countries. So I think this is not efficient just to be focused on a rich country. So one year ago, we launched this initiative. This is to help them to vaccinate and this is to help them basically as well to precisely improve their health system because this is as important as vaccination, diagnostics and treatments. We started to do so. Now we have to accelerate. And this is where I do believe your country has a huge role because you can provide financing. And I, I, I want to thank the U.S. for the $4 billion committed to COVAX, which is the, the, the vehicle to provide vaccines. But as well for the doses we will send all together. And I think between now and June, we have to send a maximum doses of vaccine, which is a tiny part of what we get for us, 
to vaccinate mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the workers of the healthcare system in Africa. It's very limited, but these guys are working hard to preserve the health system, and this is something we can do, and same in Latin America. After summer, we will accelerate these deliveries, we will accelerate this solidarity. And on top of that, what we have to provide is financing as well for these economies. We'll have more of our interview in our next half hour. On the latest episode of our podcast, Facing Forward, I spoke with Wes Gordon, creative director of Carolina Herrera, about what fashion will look like on a post-pandemic runway. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation, including our conversation with President Macron, UN Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, and a report from Brazil. Stay with us. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Thursday is Earth Day, and President Biden will be hosting a global virtual summit to discuss the climate challenges facing us all. CBS News is devoting this week to an extensive look at climate change in our series, Eye on Earth, Our Planet in Peril. We pick up our interview with French President Emmanuel Macron on just that topic. I want to ask you about climate. Um, President Biden brought the U.S. back into that Paris climate change accord uh, three months ago, but hardly any of the countries that signed it, including yours, have actually met their targets. And now President Biden is going to ask for further cuts to emissions. What makes you think it'll be achievable this time? Yes, I think because now it's time to deliver, it's time to rush, and President Biden is 100% right to do so. But I think the decision taken by your president in January this year was super important. Welcome back. I was extremely happy because now the U.S. and the federal government decided to join again and to commit. Second, as Europeans, we increased our targets for 2030 and 2050 a few months ago because, indeed, we were lagging behind in comparison with our targets. And now we have to accelerate because we are leaving the first consequences of basically climate disorders. This is even more urgent than five years ago. So your president but don't you right need to China and the, India the to make I those think, commitments? Yes, you're right. We need two things. We need to accelerate innovation and ability to deliver. We need India and China to be with us. India is very committed. And they, they are an emerging country. This is a huge democracy with a lot of inequalities to deal with. But they launched with us the solar initiative two years, three years ago now. They are improving their system. And they committed to reduce, especially HFC emissions. They say are super, uh, uh, super polluters and even worse than CO2. China remained in Paris Agreement. They increase their targets, but they are still for carbon neutrality in 2060 and mm -hmm. a peak in 2030. 
Chancellor Merkel, we had a discussion with President Xi. And I think we, we, we fault the commitments of President Xi on climate to work with the US and with Europe. First, to accelerate his target of 2030 to have the peak emission, and in some cities and some regions, to do better and faster. Don't leaders like yourself need to just speak plainly to the public and say, look, this needs to happen. It may cost you your job. It may mean prices go up. But this is a price that all of you have to pay in order to meet these targets. Look, I think, obviously, we will have to change a lot of things in our economy. We have to increase the price of carbon. And we have to help this transition to happen for our entrepreneurs and our households. If you go to the, uh, I mean, the White House or the Elysee Palace to say, now, guys, you will have to adapt yourself. You will pay a, high, a much higher price and so on. I can tell you, you will increase social inequalities. I, I, I did such a mistake, I have to say. And I can, I, I, here, I can tell you in, in 2018. Uh, because we underestimate the impact on middle classes. So in, you have to accompany people. And we have to accept for a few years to invest public money in these transitions, to help innovation and diffusion of this innovation. You have to accept to change business models and behavior of investors to finance green investments and to penalize those who don't make this move. And you have to accept to accompany your households to make these investments and make it feasible for them. We have to help middle classes and poor people to make this change with us. This is a comprehensive and inclusive agenda. I'm, I'm sure about that now. And I can tell you with a lot of humility, I'm even more sure because I, I, I made mistakes myself. Uh, Mr. President, there are roughly 31,000 Russian troops amassed on the border of Ukraine right now. What will France do if Vladimir Putin invades? I think the situation is unacceptable. Russia has to de-escalate. This is clear. The situation today and the level of tension at the border is absolutely counterproductive and unacceptable. We want now a political process to deal with some Ukrainian regions and to pacify on Vladimir Putin and has blown that off for Ukraine and Ukrainian years. people. And, and sanctions have not stopped him. Those diplomatic efforts have not stopped him. You yourself have referenced NATO as being brain dead. What is actually going to stop Vladimir Putin from invading? Look, I think what happened a few years ago when Ukraine was invaded, it's not the failure of diplomacy. It's the failure of our collective credibility vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And I think when we put red lines, we have to make them res respected by um, uh, our people and, and, and the others. And I think we have to be clear and tough. It was a failure of a naive approach vis-a-vis -vis Russia. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in favor of discussion with Russia, with an open, quiet, and respectful discussion with Russia. But I think that we, when we put red lines, we have to be sure to be credible and to make these red lines respected by the others. Now in Ukraine, Understood. if we want to be efficient, we have to accelerate the diplomatic agenda. And US, Europe, all of us have to be very clear vis-a-vis -vis Russia. We will never accept a new military operation on the Ukrainian soil. And we have to build the way to be credible vis-a-vis -vis that. 
Do you think that what President Biden did with sanctions will have any make any difference to Vladimir Putin this time? Will it stop him? I think we we need an approach to be clear based on 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 two pillars. One dialogue and I, 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 I fully share as well as the willingness of your president to dialogue and I'm sure that President Putin can be ready to reopen dialogue but if we want a, a better system in terms of arms control, if we want to stabilize a lot of existing crises in the world today, we need an open and frank dialogue with Russia. On the other so side, you will, will you sanction we have Russia to be if clear when, when, when we are not aligned and I think after uh, uh, an unacceptable behavior, indeed we have to sanction. This is what we did after Ukraine or uh, uh, um, after a, a, a series of crises which happened. And I think we have to define clear red lines with Russia. This is the only way to be credible. I think that sanctions are not sufficient in, itself, in themselves, but sanctions are part of the package. Mr. President, I'm being told that we are running out of time. Um, but I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. No, I was happy to have the opportunity to answer your questions. And, and uh, I, I, ju I just want to pass, a, to pass a very clear and simple message. I think we are, all of us, in, a, in the middle of a terrible crisis and a lot of fears. COVID-19, climate change, and so on, and security and equalities, and so on. I do believe that our common values, I do believe that our strong faith in open and liberal democracies is the best way to address these challenges. We will have to invent a new model. We will have to regulate this capitalism. We will have to deal with inequalities. We will have to reinvent a new narrative and new actions, new investment on green technologies, new cooperation for vaccination. I think we have the opportunity to do it together and to build and invent our future. I'm a strong believer in this positive and ambitious agenda together. And I hope we will deliver hand in hand together. We will watch Thank for that, you. Mr. President. Thank you. There was some big foreign news last week. After almost 20 years, America's longest war will finally come to an end, as President Biden announced that all troops will be out of Afghanistan by September 11th. U.S. intelligence warns that soon afterward, the Taliban may regain control of the country. According to the Pentagon, more than 2,400 Americans died in this war. More than 20,000 were wounded. We honor them and their loved ones for their service. We spoke with President Biden's ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, earlier, and we asked about the upcoming climate summit, where the president is expected to press world leaders to make further pledges on cutting emissions. What new pledges has the U.S. secured? And without India and China on board, isn't this going to be a bust? I, I don't think it's going to be a bust. In fact, I think this is an opportunity for us to hear from other countries what new commitments they intend to make. We intend to encourage them to up their game and to 
uh, openly express uh, in this forum what they intend to do to deal with climate change. And we hope that India and China will join us. I want to ask you about these thousands of refugees who have learned that they are now stranded. Uh, they thought they were coming to the United States, but they're in limbo uh, because President Biden signed this cap on refugee admissions at this historically low number of 15,000. Why did he break his promise? I don't think the president broke his promise. We're looking at this. This is a first step. And we're looking at the infrastructure that we have in place to support bringing refugees into the United States. That infrastructure was basically destroyed over the past four years. And so this is just a, a first installment. And I know that the president intends to revisit those numbers over the course of the next few months. Well, it just two months ago, the president said he'd up it to 62,000, and then yesterday he signed paperwork capping it at 15,000, and the White House cited unspecified burdens on the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Is that a way of saying that the migrant crisis at the U.S. border is stopping the U.S. from accepting refugees from all over the world? I don't think that's the case. I worked on uh, refugee resettlement issues in part of my career, and I know that to bring in refugees require a very extensive infrastructure of agencies that are involved in processing refugees, agencies that are involved in resettling refugees, and communities that will accept those refugees. That infrastructure has to be rebuilt so that we can ensure that we can bring refugees into the United States in an orderly fashion. And I know that that is what is uh, right now under uh, serious uh, consideration and work, and I expect that our numbers will increase. The president is committed to refugees. He made that clear during the campaign, and he's made it clear over uh, the past uh, week. So you do expect that goal of 62,500 to be met? I know that that goal is there, and everything will be done to meet that goal. I also know how challenging it is to, to reach it, but I can say without any doubt that every resource that we have available to us will be put into reaching that goal and possibly even going beyond. This past week, you uh, gave a speech that I want to ask you about because it's gotten quite a lot of attention. Um, you said the original sin of slavery weaved white supremacy into our founding documents and principles. You talked about white supremacy being linked to the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, continued discrimination against Muslims and Asian Americans. America likes to think it provides moral leadership to the world. Are you saying we're deluding ourselves? No, I think we're being tremendous leaders. Our country is not perfect, but we continue to perfect it. Those imperfections are part of our history, and we have to talk about them. It's, it's our strength that we can talk about our imperfections to the world and call out other nations for those same imperfections. So it's not a, a criticism, it's an acknowledgment of our history, it's an acknowledgment of where we started. But we need to look at where we've come. The fact that I came from a segregated high school and I'm now the permanent representative of the United States in the, in, at the United Nations says everything about what our country is about. 
And I look forward to continuing to engage with other countries to use our example to show those other countries what they might achieve. But we still have a lot of work to do, and we have to acknowledge that, but we also have to work to continue to improve our country. But it is precisely because of the the role you have as a cabinet member that it drew so much criticism. I mean, the Wall Street Journal editorial board called you the ambassador of Blame America First, saying it sounded like you were reciting Chinese propaganda about America and that you believe your job is to bring critical race theory to the world with a focus on criticizing your own country. To be clear, were you comparing bigotry in America to mass atrocities carried out against minorities around the world? I was acknowledging what is a fact in the United States. Racism does exist in this country. And I think it was a powerful message. Imagine any other country doing that. Our country, the uniqueness of our country is that we can self-criticize and we can move forward. And our values are clear. And the purpose of that speech was to lay out our values, but also acknowledge our imperfections and acknowledge that we are, are moving forward. I don't think you will see a, Uyghur, a Chinese Uyghur getting on the national uh, stage acknowledging China's uh, issues with, with human rights. Uh, I'm not comparing our situation. I'm acknowledging that we've come a long way. And I'm very proud of what we have been able to achieve, but I'm realistic about what we have to do moving forward. And I think if we are going to be a voice around the globe for raising issues of human rights, we cannot whitewash our own issues in, in our own country. Uh, Ambassador, I really want to ask you about Tigray. Um, you said this week to the UN Security Council, do African lives not matter as much as those experiencing conflict in other countries? You were challenging them because of the systemic rape, the gang rapes that are being carried out against young girls in Tigray, in this conflict area in Ethiopia and Eritrea. This has been well documented. It's been called ethnic cleansing by the United States. Why haven't we heard from President Biden and Vice President Harris about this concern? What is the U.S. doing? Well, I think you have heard from President Biden, because you've heard from me and you've heard from Secretary uh, Blinken. President Biden has engaged uh, with the Ethiopian government. Uh, Secretary Blinken has engaged with the Ethiopian government. President Biden sent a presidential emissary. Senator Coons to have discussions with the Ethiopian government and lay out our concerns about the horrific situation in Tigray. And as the U.S. representative on the Security Council, I thought it was important that the Security Council's voice also be added to the voices of concern about the situation there. Uh, we have seen well, you're clearly those saying what's being done is not enough. Uh, it is not enough, and that's why I raised it in the Security Council, because I think we have to make sure that the victims hear our voices, but also the perpetrators know that we are concerned and that we're watching this situation uh, like we're looking and, and addressing situations elsewhere in the world. So, yes, I agree with you. More has to be done, and that was the purpose of my raising this issue. 
Ambassador, I'm told we are at time. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Late yesterday, President Biden said that he limited the number of refugees entering the U.S. due to the influx of child migrants at the U.S. border. We couldn't do two things at once, he said, but he's promised to increase the numbers. We'll be right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Other than the U.S., no country has seen more deaths due to COVID-19 than Brazil. The International Medical Aid Agency, Doctors Without Borders, is describing the situation there as a humanitarian catastrophe, as the country's daily death toll is now the highest in the world. CBS News national correspondent Manuel Bajorquez spent the week in Sao Paulo. Here's his report. When we arrived in Brazil, we knew the crisis at hand, but seeing it up close truly reveals the desperation. No more so than in the nation's hospitals, the ICUs, which are overwhelmed, some running low on the medicines needed to intubate patients. The one we visited in Sao Paulo, all of those are COVID-19 patients. There's no room for others. And the doctor we spoke with said many are younger in their 20s, 30s and 40s. And once they get here, the odds are not good. In your experience, how many of these nine people in this one room will recover or not? Menos da metade. Less than half will recover. Na maioria dos casos, esses pacientes, a última... You're the last person they see before they die. The fight against the virus has been a political one from the start. The governor of Sao Paulo State, Joao Doria, told us he feels like he's fighting the coronavirus and what he calls the Bolsonaro virus, a dig at the country's president, Jair Bolsonaro, who has been widely criticized for his response to the pandemic, for downplaying the virus and resisting calls for lockdowns. We need at this moment to be united against the virus, not divided. Are you still advocating for a lockdown right now? We are applicating lockdown right now. We haven't voted to stay home. At this time, please stay home. The virus has ravaged Brazil's economy, and as cases surge, so does food insecurity. In one of the poorer sections of town, a favela, we found a young man who, in between bites of a donated lunch, which he says he's come to rely on every day because there's no work, he made it clear to us his options are stark. If you did this, meaning... Robbing people would be the other option. Because there's no opportunity, no oportunidad. We visited Latin America's largest cemetery, and the burials are happening one right after the other. There were about seven in just the 45 minutes that we were there, and the crews are having to dig up graves and bury bodies around the clock. There is a reason the world is so concerned about what's happening here in Brazil, and not just from the standpoint of human suffering. That's because the more the virus spreads, the more it can mutate. Our Manny Bajorquez reporting from Brazil. We'll be right back. Thank you for watching. 
I won't be here for the next couple of months. I'll be taking some time with my husband and son to welcome our new baby, but you will be in very good hands. We're bringing in a familiar face to fill the moderator's chair. In the meantime, my colleague, John Dickerson. John? Hello, Margaret. It's a lucky club to have a mother for a journalist, and I can't wait to meet our newest member. But until then, we'll take care of things here, and we'll have it ready for you when you're back. So to all of you viewers out there for Face the Nation, we'll see you next week. Today's guests were President Biden's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, French President Emmanuel Macron, and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also broadcast on our digital network, CBSN. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.